like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk welcome to the latest episode of the just not sports podcast this is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like just not sports on today's episode we've got a jam-packed show we've got an interview with longtime major league baseball pitcher and chicago cubs fan favorite carrie Wood, all about the art of mixing a great drink and the science of playing paddle tennis. Yes, paddle tennis carries new obsession. A really fun conversation with him about that. And, you know, it's bowl season. It's people talking about football and college football and the playoffs. So, you know, we're going to break down the most hyper-realistic portrayal of modern amateurism and football, the 1992 movie, The Program. Maybe things taken to a slightly exaggerated level, unless you consider skeleton face paint uh, status quo. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me on the line this week is the full Just Not Sports crew, Joe Reed Groupies. You can be happy again. Let's start our introductions with another person in Chicago tonight. Feared, respected, loved, you know, lots of other adjectives. PR rep who is long time <laughs> with the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands. It's Adam Millard. Adam, since we're talking about movies tonight, have you yes. ever walked out of a movie in your life? And what was it? No, the only one I came close was the Dark Knight Rises because I was with you. And Kelly, and you seem, both of you seem so disgusted by the plot holes in the movie, uh, and you ruined it for me. How, how did I ruin this movie for you? Did I, like, spoil the ending? What was the deal? You just were disgusted by, I was enthralled and thought it was a great piece of, albeit mindless entertainment, uh, and you and Kelly both roasted it and i could see like audible groans during the movie um and it made me feel inferior and like maybe i was missing something uh and i still have a hard time watching it to this day if brad burke is talking during movies so help me god i don't know how i can continue not really talking more just like the body language and the uh I was like, wow, I thought this was great. Bane is so cool. And I was like, right. Audible eye rolling. All right. All right. To be fair, my wife was probably pissed she was there to begin with. All right. <laughs> like that's, that's a big lift for her. I'm not, even, I'm not even sure she saw the first two of the Dark Knight Nolan trilogy. Okay. And second, that movie was butt. That movie was terrible. That movie's awful. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. Okay. 
<laughs> I disagree. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Fine. All right. Also with us, who you've also heard, it is seven-time Emmy-winning sports. You know what? What are you, producer? <laughs> I was just gonna say sports yeah, reporter, sure. sports <laughs> producer. <laughs> Gareth Hughes. Gareth, um, have you ever walked out of a movie? I haven't. Uh, the two I came closest to were The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, uh. um, <laughs> which I had really high hopes going into because of my love for Wes Anderson. And I still hate that movie. And honestly, my equivalent to the moment, uh, uh, to The Dark Knight Rises, um, a movie where I had the highest of high expectations, The Second Matrix. Was oh, pretty yeah, bad. <laughs> uh, I just remember that ended, and my friend who had bought the tickets for it turned to me and he goes, "That wasn't so bad." I was like, "That movie was terrible, man. <laughs> that was pretty bad." <laughs> it was only like two years ago that I actually sat down, like it was on TV, the third one, and I was like, "All right, let's see how this wrapped up," and I finished it. So. I'll give you two more. I, these actually came to mind today. I didn't walk out, but I do remember I going to have to. I needed to drink heavily after both of these movies. Vanilla Sky with yeah. Tom Cruise, <laughs> and then The Master with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix. Both of them were such mind fucks, for lack of a better word. I was just. You just left feeling numb and confused. Joe, what movies have you walked out of? I've uh, I've never walked out of a movie. I um, I feel like if I'm paying money to see a movie in theaters, I'm I'm gonna experience the experience. I'm gonna experience no matter what. Uh, the one that I came closest to, we saw. I don't know if you guys know this movie. It's uh. The movie called Nine, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah, where he's like an Italian, I think he's like a filmmaker or like a fashion designer, I don't even know what what it's about, but I remember we saw it with some, uh, an aunt and uncle of mine and some cousins who were, I don't know, sort of into that thing, and I remember just like, probably like 20 minutes in being like, oh my god, what are, like kind of looking left and looking right, and then we all got out of the movie after putting up with it, and all of us in the lobby of the movie theater were like, "Ugh, that was not good at all." And I was like, "We should have just left. We should have all collectively gotten up and gotten our money back, and we all didn't want to say anything, so we just sat there and watched it for two hours. It was not <laughs> good at all. But I, so I should have walked out of that one. I have legit walked out of a theater during the movie Life with Mikey which was a Michael J. Fox movie from the early 90s that we watched 10 minutes of and we're like, let's get out of here. And then... Really? The movie The Happening with Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, I didn't walk out. I didn't walk out, but as as everyone who listens to the show knows, like we work stressful jobs. We work a lot of hours. So this is a Friday night. I was in Chicago. My roommate, Other Brad, was like, What's up, man? Let's go see this uh, M. Night Shyamalan movie. I said, fine. It's Friday night. We went to like a 10 o'clock show. It was so bad that I started to drift off to sleep. And I I was fighting it. You know, like you're just really fighting it. And then I finally said, fuck it, man. (laughs) 
And I just, I just like slept through the rest of the movie. <laughs> like I just, I just went to sleep <laughs> in the chair in the theater. That's a whole separate. We're, gonna, you know what? Forget it. We're gonna get to that in a different episode. We'll do a, a special happening. Yeah, we, we should do a happening. Episode. All right, right now we're gonna take the <laughs> open of the show and make it wide open. And as promised, we are going full program. Look, guys, this movie is, I don't know. It's complicated for a lot of <laughs> a lot of reasons, and yet it's strangely something you can't turn away from for so many reasons. So we just felt like it's the elephant in the room. It's college football bowl season. Let's break down the program start to finish. And here's where I want to start. Adam, in 30 seconds or less, can you give our listeners who have not, you know, and like Joe Reed, who are not alive in 93... Uh, in 30 seconds or less, give us this quick synopsis of this, of this movie. There's a school, uh, ESU is a struggling football program. They, the coach is on the verge of getting fired. And so across the board, the team takes desperate measures to improve and go to a bowl game the following season. And during that process, rules are broken. I, I, I don't Thirty want to, seconds. That's pretty perfect. accurate to me. I don't want to make this weird, but I think half of that is wrong. This movie has some tonal problems in that the movie you just described, Adam, I would describe as blue chips. The, this movie, <laughs> true, this movie true. is not blue chips. I just think this movie doesn't not know what it wanted to be. I feel like it started in pre-production as we want to be Friday Night Lights, the book, a, a, a really unflinching look at how football is a big business, corporate-owned, drug-fueled, sex-fueled mess-up. And then a studio executive was like, Cool, keep all that, but make it a heartwarming story that everyone can rally around. <laughs> right? Wait, you really? You thought that there was, I didn't think that there was any attempt to make this heartwarming. I think you had to have some exciting scenes that represented the football and the, f- the football uh, quality of this team. Um, but I don't think, I didn't get the attempt that any of this was uh, an attempt to celebrate college football i think it was uh showing how these their kids they're taken advantage of they're put into a system um where no one truly cares about them and if they happen to have some success on the football football field so be it tonal problems with the movie yes i do think they kind of nailed that era of college football and just because that movie wouldn't get made now or wouldn't be made that way i i kind of think for a pre-playoff pre like championship it felt pretty accurate to the stories of the football i heard about like some of the stuff was perfect some of the lines were perfect like what (laughs) no like there's a moment early on the movie where they're doing oklahoma drills which in and of itself dates it to, you know, a time when you could do that kind of thing. Yeah, yep. exactly. And there's a line where the guy's like, 
where he says to his defensive player, I want you to hit him until he gets a snot bubble. And I just, I had remembered it, it was actually in 1993, the same year this movie came out, uh, Sports Illustrated's preview, because I looked this up with their uh, NFL preview issue, was all about linebackers. And Mike Singletary was quoted in there as saying, I like to hit quarterbacks in such a way that you can, they get a little snot bubble coming out. And I was like, man, they, they nailed some of this. Clearly, we have a lot to break down here. And, and Joe Reed, I want to hear from you on the millennial perspective on this. Uh, uh, <laughs> number one, uh, let me ask you this, Gareth. You, you, you are a seven-time Emmy winner for CBS Sports. You've spent a ton of time in college football. Uh, uh, what conference is ESU in in this universe? <laughs> Thank you. That was one of my biggest talking points. What the hell is up with their schedule? Mississippi State, Michigan, Georgia Tech, North Carolina, Iowa, and Texas. What conference are they in? They're independent, uh, clearly. Adam, they are They're not, not independent. They, there is a line where the coach says, if we win this game, we win the conference and go to a major bowl. And I was like, fuck you. I thought you were independent this whole time. Fuck you, Coach Con. Seriously. Okay. And also, who's... So then who's playing out of conference? Who's playing Michigan out of conference in week four? You're definitely in conference play by week four. I don't understand this. Okay, my in my in 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 the in the program expanded universe, here's what I think has happened. I think okay. I think they are I think they are an ACC team, an ACC team that has awkwardly scheduled Michigan and Iowa at times when uh, a game was maybe delayed by a hurricane. Because they are in the south. There's no snow or anything in the late part of the season. Okay? They're in the south. We know this. And yet, okay, first of all, they're in the south, but their name is the Timberwolves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And their uniforms, I know they were going, they're, they're, they're clearly going for... They're Florida State. Florida State. They're Florida State, But right? they always just yeah. seem like Boston College. And this drives me crazy. Yes. <laughs> it was kind of hard to follow. They're playing Iowa. They're playing Michigan Week 4. They lose to North Carolina. I don't know if North Carolina was good in the early 90s. Um, I think they beat Texas. Apparently, Georgia Tech is like their big rival, right? Because that's like the end of the season. So what, what is the other question I have? I'm sorry. I have a lot of things to talk about with this movie. <laughs> what state What state are they in? They're Eastern State University. Are they Eastern? What is this? It's it's so unclear. Um, I, I, I want to go back to the tonal part of the movie. Gareth, is the coach played by James Caan, is he... Um, uh, by the way, James Caan, best known for his role as the cranky dad from Elf and no other movies. Is he, <laughs> is he a villain or a hero? Look, I think he, I don't know if he's a hero or a villain. I think he's someone who's struggling to have a soul in a soulless profession. And he is, there's a great scene where a guy is about to get suspended for cheating. <clears throat> and... Like the university, uh, the guys from the university, the the disciplinary committee asks him if he thinks this kid is okay or if he's lying to them. And he struggles mightily in front of these disciplinarians to, to lie. Like there's a good five-second pause as he 
brings forth the gumption to say, no, yeah, I, 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 and he stammers. I think he's a good kid. I think he's telling the truth. Wait, and in wait, that moment, missing, missing a, a vital aspect of the relationship here. This is his backup quarterback who is sleeping with his daughter. <laughs> Who's, and his daughter was his, no 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 and his daughter was his, expelled for taking the test of this guy. Right, he's not right, trying right. to get his daughter back in school. He's trying to get the backup quarterback back in school. I don't know. I think James Conn does a decent job of conveying the moral struggle there. He fails the moral test in the end. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but he clearly. For all to see, including the people who are about to give forth the discipline, uh, he's a football coach in that moment. I think it was actually one of the better moments of the movie. All right. I'm going to give you a quick rundown of the characters in this movie, and, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to break down some of you know, the, the overall plot. So let's start with there's the quarterback of ESU, Joe. <laughs> who is a you know son of an alcoholic, Heisman Trophy candidate, looks exactly like the dude from the league who was in those Buffalo Wild Wing commercials and later was found <laughs> out to be a liar about 9-11. And the entire time watching this movie, I'm thinking two things about this guy. One is he is clearly five foot five. And two is he's like Doug Flutie, except they don't want him to be seen as Doug Flutie. And two is I cannot take seriously the dude who <laughs> said he was in the Twin Towers, but was not. There is, and then everyone else in this movie is just kind of a, a like out of a out of a copier, like they're a copy of something else you already know. There's the linebacker who's like baby Lawrence Taylor. There's the gross, roided-up weirdo who's always screaming with long hair who is Baby Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds. There is... Uh, <laughs> I thought it was the same actor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For I'm like, yeah, this is totally Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds. You know, they, and then, they, you know Halle Berry is in it as a, uh, a prim and proper uh, student in the university who's in a love triangle between uh, fake... Uh, I guess a roided up Carlton from, <laughs> you know, roided up Carlton from Fresh Prince and uh, Darnell, who is Omar Epps, uh, the, the star running backs who are fighting for her love. And then, <laughs> and then finally, I mean, guys, my favorite character in this entire movie is dude from Parker Posey Can't Lose or what? <laughs> Parker Posey, what a Parker Lewis Can't <laughs> Parker Lose. Lewis can't lose. Who is the offensive lineman? And the greatest, one of the greatest names in sports movie history, Bud Kaminsky, nicknamed Bud Light. Man. <laughs> Amazing. I, but I, of all these characters, I mean, look, this movie has Halle Berry in it. This movie has James Caan in it. But of all these characters, I want to talk about Baby Ogre, the... Uh, you know, the, the, the roided up linebacker and Adam, I know you have thoughts on this too, but <laughs> I got a, I got a couple of thoughts. I want to get off my chest first. Number one, this guy's shooting steroids and they say, stop doing steroids. <laughs> so he, he dumps <laughs> his steroids in the toilet. 
includes includes the syringes. Bro, those can go in the trash can. Somewhere, some kid in Mississippi got a mouthful of freaking syringe out of a uh, out of a drain. All right. But this guy literally this is how unsubtle this movie is. This guy literally, literally be- became a monster by the end of the movie. He is Skeletor, <laughs> covered in skeleton paint by the end of this movie. Well, I'm I'm wondering what what was his arc? What what did we what did we learn about this man throughout the course of the movie? I just um, covered it. Bro. So he. <laughs> Exactly. So he ta- so he takes steroids. He uh, attempts to rape this woman and is pulled off of her by his uh, fellow teammates. Uh, and then he's suspended for three games, not because he beat the shit out of and tore clothes off of a woman, but because they think he's taking steroids. He stops taking steroids, restarts taking steroids, and then they win the conference championship game, go to a bowl game, and then he's just sad Skeletor. Like, I don't know... I don't know what the uh, arc oh, is. Guys. First of all, this character has a name, and the character's name is Steve Latimer. Latimer, Latimer that's right, yeah. Spends three years on the punt return team as an average Joe, and all he wants, because he uses the phrase more than once, is a seat at the table. So he puts on 35 pounds of muscle in the off season and becomes this movie's version of Tony Mandrich, uh, who rose to stardom after taking performance-enhancing drugs. And then the pivotal moment when his confidence, he's still allowed, he's off steroids, but allowed to play, and he's steamrolled in the end zone by a running back because the steroids are out of his system and uh, his confidence is gone. So... He starts taking steroids again, and then he undergoes, and this, to me, along with this salt, is the most <laughs> brutal scene in the movie where he, his drug hipster buddy drains his bladder through an IV and then puts fresh urine back in his bladder. This is how badly this guy wanted to seat at the table. Makes a important tackle in the final game of the season. Comes to the sideline. The coach can see that his eyes are dilated. And following the game, cries because he knows he will never play football again. I think this character, more than any character in movie history, speaks. He's like the evil Rudy. Like he just wants in. <laughs> he just wants to be part of the team. <laughs> He just wants to be part of the team. So he does, unlike Rudy, who gets by with hard work and gets one play, this guy roids himself up to the gills so that he can be a star on the defense. And he knows after that final game that it's over for him. So on the, speaking of Lattimore and, and, and Latimer and the, the problematic parts of this movie, I want to ask you guys, and we'll go one by one, what is the least woke part of this movie? Because there are a couple different nominees from my perspective. Here, here we go. Number one, the quarterback 
bringing a girl on his motorcycle and then she's like drive slow and he drives 100 miles per hour without her consent and when it stops she's like basically like she's the bad guy for not lightening up two is all of the we will call quite questionable concussion protocol as this movie includes <laughs> an enormous volume of hits to the head that are super violent, just in practice, not even the games. Three is the way they portray fake Lawrence Taylor's house at the end, which looks like a shanty shack from the color purple. Like, you could not have gotten more stereotypical, like, poor southern black character than the way they, they they try to portray him four is the bonus scene which is not in the movie you can even buy anymore of the players laying down in traffic as yes. cars drive by which they took out after 93 when this aired because there was such a fervor and it's not there but we will never forget hashtag never forget i i think the there's a general theme or an anger towards women in this movie that really struck me where the um, Omar Epps character um, will not take no for an answer when it comes to Halle Berry uh, and and her refusal to date him and his continued pressure of her, the rape scene, clearly, and then the quarterback and the tennis player, same thing, a relentless pursuit uh, despite her resistance, a lack of respect, like this the poor female characters in this movie, you would like to uh, think that they were portrayed as strong and independent, but really um, men in this movie just don't take no for an answer. Part of this is hard because you're, you're judging a movie in its time. And some of those things that might've seemed fairly progressive then, like actually suspending a guy for steroid slash sexual assault, <laughs> Seemed like whoa, they're fairly progressive in 1993. Three games and, for and rape. Look back at it, <laughs> it's not progressive in '93, man. Brad, <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. Okay, fine. How did Florida State do on that this decade? <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I know. Hey, how? how um, <laughs> I know. It's how so is the sad. S Here's how is the SEC? Was, do I think the, that's the whole point of it. How is the SEC doing now? Like you, you. We hear about these things in areas where football players aren't worshipped. I worked at the University of Colorado when allegations were abound from women um, who said they had been assaulted by players on the team, but that's in a very liberal community. I think the point was, in the South, you never even hear about this. He, this was a culture of cover-up. He was suspended for steroids but i don't even think that they that ever made it to the public i think it was something like a hamstring injury and i think this was trying to talk about a culture of cover-up in these elite college football programs and towns where football is the most important thing and women and other people involved don't matter and so let's make sure we make up whatever story we have to so we can get to that bowl game and make money is I'm talking about like things that were not very progressive, woke, aware in the time of 1993. Here's one that they could have gotten right, and that is the Heisman campaign. This is one that they blew in the moment because 
There's yep. a lot of PR in this, and I'd love to hear from you guys on that. But one of my favorite sort of, huh, if I'm going to laud them for the research they did and like using Mike Singletary's line to describe the linebacker, there, there's an early scene where they're talking to the quarterback and they say they're laying out the Heisman campaign for him. And somebody says, if you win the Heisman, it affects your draft status. You can make more money at the next level. <laughs> and I was like, as I recall, that time was not a particularly good one for Heisman winners going into the NFL. So I here's here's the list of people. This movie came out in 1993. The 1990 Heisman winner was Ty Detmer out of BYU. I think he went on to be a career backup in the NFL. 91 he was had Desmond one good Howard. season with the Eagles. Yeah, yep. Okay, yeah. 91 was Desmond Howard. He was a good punt returner in the NFL. 92. Uh, real quick, when real this quick, movie was just, in production. Just, Super, Bowl, Super Bowl MVP. Like, we, we will give him that game. Like, let's just throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, true. 92. Gino Toretta of Miami. I don't think he ever played in the NFL. All time NFL great. Charlie All Ward. time NFL great. <laughs> right. He 93. Charlie did Ward. play. Not, well. not drafted by the NFL. 94. Rashawn Salam out of the Colorado oh. Buffaloes. I think he was yeah. serviceable in the NFL. Um, he, he had Eddie one George. good. He smoked himself out of the league. Hey, by the way, Charlie Ward, Eddie Charlie George. Ward he was, was great. Coveted. Charlie Ward was coveted by New York teams all throughout the early '90s because they. The joke was the best <laughs> quarterback played for the Knicks because he didn't. He didn't. He chose not to go to. Uh, football. He I, I think he was going to see where he got drafted. I, I didn't. I didn't. I don't remember that. Either way, 95, Eddie George, he was a great NFL player. Danny Werfel, 96, no NFL career. 97, Charles Woodson, 98, Ricky Williams were great. Ron Dane in 99, mm. he had an okay NFL career. 2000, Chris Winkie from Florida State. And 2001, Eric Crouch. I mean, like... Heisman Trophy winners in the NFL is a long and it was just, that's a minefield. That was one where I was like, they could have done their research in the moment. Yeah, I mean, look, I want to say this about the quarterback yeah. in this movie, okay? Fake uh, Buffalo Wild Wings guy. I looked up the, the guy who played him, uh, and I forget his name right now. Oh, Craig, Craig Sheffer. Uh, he was born in 1960, which means when this movie came out, he was 33 years old, <laughs> and he looks. <laughs> yeah, but this was it. Wait, hold on. This hey, was hey. at the height of 90210. Okay, wait, so you Gareth, can make Gareth, a 30 Gareth. year old into an 18 year old. Gareth, I'm gonna shut you down right there because I looked that up too. Luke Perry, born in 1966, which means Luke Perry is six years younger than this guy when he's playing a high school player. <laughs> but I, I'm gonna go a step. I'm gonna go a step further because everyone knows at the same time that this movie came out there was a movie called necessary roughness where scott bacula which played, we're going to get to on the pod we will get to it eventually uh, stay tuned scott bacula played a quarterback drawn out of obscurity at a super old age to lead a football team to glory in the movie that character was 34 that means Scott fucking Bacula's character was one year older than this guy who's being passed <laughs> off as a junior because at the end of this movie, James Cotton's like, maybe the Heisman next year. And I was like, 
maybe next year? <laughs> maybe next year this guy's son is going to be here. Like, this is ridiculous. As you talk about the program Extended Universe, I think the program is actually the prequel to Necessary Roughness because you have crossover from both of the defensive players on the ESU team. They both appear later in Necessary Roughness on the Texas State team. I think they had eligibility left over and they both went and played for Texas State. Man, Whoa. that'd be a great. That's a pretty great theory. I will say that. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the end of the movie because the end of the movie is 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 ESU playing its natural Big Ten conference rival Georgia Tech, and they are, <laughs> are competing for the conference championship. And you know, quarterback Buffalo Wild Wings slash Scott Bakula slash this dude, whatever his name is. <laughs> His character's name is Joe Kane. Guys, these characters have names, and it's important. Wait, his name's Cocaine? <laughs> yeah, you can't forget. Yes. Kane is able. Yeah, remember? Kane, we got Kane it on a pin. is yes. able. And Joe Reed, I'm going to start with you on That's this. That's the entire campaign. I, I, Joe Reed, I'm going to start with you on this. Kane rolls out, rolls right, needs a touchdown to win the game, throws the ball directly to his feet into the turf, then picks it up. And then throws it into the end zone for a touchdown. Joe, was that a fumble as it was ruled on the field or a forward pass, thereby negating the win and the bowl appearance? Please give us the CSI investigation. Brad, I'm going to be honest. I was so, uh, I was distracted by something else that was going on in that like 35 second long slow motion scene and that was that everything was in slow motion but uh omar f's character and many other characters on the field were talking in normal speed <laughs> yeah did that bother anyone else yeah and their that mouth, happened in several their scenes. mouth is full of mouth and the mouths don't match up move. at all yeah no nothing matches mouth, up. his mouth is not moving at all and he's like oh time to go and then he goes and catches the <laughs> touchdown i'm like your mouth didn't move and you're being shot at like 60 frames a second this doesn't make sense <laughs> um but for the benefit of the doubt i'll give him the fumble i don't know fumble no tuck rule in college football so you could say it's one of two things so tuck rule didn't come into the nfl even until 1999 and there is no tuck rule in college so he fumbles the ball and then uh picks it up and throws it to the end zone it's a touchdown the only thing you might be able to call it and it's not illegal forward pass you might be able to call it an accidental spike so then I don't know what down that was, but the clock would have stopped and they would have had another play. They don't show the clock either. Allegedly, this was the last play of the game, but we never really see where the clock is at when the play is actually happening. But uh, for all intents and purposes, this is a fumble and a touchdown. Boom. There you go. I mean, Adam used to work for the Green Bay Packers, so <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> What's most unrealistic? Adam, you, you can start by the, with this answer. Um, Latimer's full skeleton face paint that is not even like barely... It's not cracked at all by sweat or the helmet, but it is <laughs> right, completely yes. er eradicated by his tears at the end of the movie. 
Or <laughs> is it quarterback Joe during the week before the big game flies somehow to see his father <laughs> and gives him a plane ticket and says, come see my game. When did he make that trip? Or is it in the locker room during the last game, the backup quarterback, the, 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 the coach flips over a table of Gatorade and says to the backup quarterback, uh, mop that up. How do you mop up carpet? Because <laughs> that was all on oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. I don't know where to, I think Steve Latimer's character in general is the most unrealistic thing about this movie. This dude, if you just watched him run, uh, this is a bodybuilder. This dude was the <laughs> stiffest <Yeah>. athlete <laughs> I have Brett, ever seen. I'm going to give you one more. The most unrealistic part about this movie in the final drive, ESU's biggest problem is they don't seem to have a wide receiver or tight end on the roster because every single pass either goes to the fullback or the tailback. You never even see another receiver or tight end in the general vicinity of a, or has having a chance at the pass. I think they just put offensive linemen out there and told them to block because there's two guys catching passes. Brad, Brad, uh, do you know um, the actor who plays Steve Latimer? I don't know if you look this up. Do you know who else he plays? No. Brad will have a particular interest in this. He plays in the yeah. in the recent 2000 reboots of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series. He is Leatherface. What? So, and Brad, he got in a beef with Texas Chainsaw Massacre fans because <laughs> when Gunnar Nelson died, he tweeted out basically good riddance and people were like what are you doing ripping the original Leatherface?" and he was like i never had any problem with the man we started beefing at various cons about who was the greater Leatherface, and so now he is sort of hated in the texas chainsaw massacre universe yeah by the way you said gunner nelson oh yeah you said gunner nelson and that's the gunner from the band Nelson and not Gunner Hansen, <laughs> who is leather, actually Leatherface. One more top, one more thing I wanted to cover. I actually do think this movie did a good job of representing the the black athlete, particularly the black collegiate athlete. Our line, the linebacker, as you say, the uh, baby uh, Lawrence Taylor is functionally illiterate. And once he's injured, has no idea where his life will go. I think that happens a lot still in college football. And then you have Omar Epps' character, whose pastor is like, hey, I, I know you're there to play football, but make sure you take care of your grades because you're not going to be uh, just another pawn for the collegiate football system. I do think um, they did a pretty good job representing representing that cultural uh, nuance in this movie. This is a, a two thumbs up, definitely watch though, right? <laughs> I mean, to all of our, all well, of our <laughs> That's the amazing thing that happens with some of these discussions. Reading our text chain and Brad reading your the two emails you sent last night, you would think we all really like this movie, but then when you break it down, you find out maybe you don't like it so much. 
Guys, but you know what we uh, we all do really love? Ice cold, refreshing Sprite. Oh yeah, quarterback oh, Joe, good. man, good he loves loves the Sprite. <laughs> and with that, let's transition into an interview I got to do recently with Kerry Wood. Kerry Wood, the Chicago sports legend, longtime Chicago Cubs pitcher. He of the twenty strikeout game. He of the backhanded stabs in the playoffs. He of the uh, reinventing himself as the closer for a couple division titles later in his career in Chicago. Uh, you know, Carries does a lot of great work with his pitch-in mentorship program here in Chicago, uh, targeting at-risk youths. Um, it's, it, you know, it's his foundation. It's something that, that you know, Chicagoans know Carey is really involved with. And he's got an event coming up called Woody's Winter Warm-Up. It's kind of cool. I mean, he's gonna. It's it's a celebrity bartending event where he's gonna have everyone from like Anthony Rizzo to Bonnie Hunt uh, to friend of show Sp- Sarah Spain uh, guest bartending. So we, we kind of break that down. Um, you know, it's a fundraiser for uh, for his foundation. If you want tickets, uh, it's it's Friday, January twelfth. Uh, in the evening, 8.30 at Harry Carey's uh, in Watertower Place. Uh, you can get tickets. Uh, you know, check out his um, his foundation's website or, or go to uh, woodies.brownpapertickets.com for more information. So we break down you know, the art of mixing a drink, uh, the, the sp- signature drink that Carey has uh, created for the event, and, and how he wrangles Rizzo and those guys into bartending. And then, man, we transition into Carey's uh, athletic pursuits outside of baseball, which include... Paddle tennis, yes, paddle tennis, which is kind of like ping pong on steroids or tennis off steroids, <laughs> I guess you could say. Uh, we break down what it is about uh, this game that got carry into it. We we talk about why the old guys who play school him consistently on it and the art of uh, hitting a ball off the wall, racquetball style. And then we also talk about Carrie's golf game, some memorable putts that that shut up his friends on the course. And, uh, and so much more. It's a really animated conversation with Kerry. We think his fans and uh, Chicago's fans especially will enjoy it. So stick around. That's coming up. And afterwards, we will be back to distract you. Well, let's start with uh, let's start with Woody's winter warm up um, celebrity bartending event you've got coming up on January twelfth. Uh, it's a big weekend around the you know the Cubs convention. You've got a lot of um, celebrity bartenders um, who are going to be there helping raise money for um, you know for the pitch in mentorship program and your foundation. Let me start with this. I mean, what's it take to convince uh, celebrities not just to attend your event but to uh, to work it, my friend? Well, see, that's that's the tricky part, right? Uh, I get the re- I get I get the celebrities that that aren't my buddies to come out first. I get them to commit, and then as the uh, opening ceremonies and as we start to figure out the uh, all the players that are in town for for uh, the Cubs convention, as they figure out their schedules for the weekend, um, I find out who's not doing anything right after opening ceremonies, and then they come over to my event. So I track them all down day of, day before. Uh, they all know it's coming, obviously. We yeah. all go to Rizzo's event the night before. He's got a great little event that he does for for cancer. He's got a laugh-off thing he does on Thursday night. So we all meet up there. We support him. And then, obviously, we I pick the guys and let them find out where they're at and what their schedule is. And, and then they they come on over, and I stick them behind the bar. So, um, no, it's been great. We've had great – this is our seventh year doing it. The Cubs uh, – obviously, the Cubs convention being right there helps us. But uh, the organization, the team, uh, the players have been just – supportive throughout the throughout the years and we can't thank them enough and obviously tom ricketts and theo and these guys uh being big supporters of the foundation it helps us in a big way so 
um, yeah, it's a fun time. It's great. It's all right. I mean, right after the holidays, first of the year wraps around and then, um, you know, it's time to start talking about baseball. So it's nice to get all these guys in the room and, uh, and kind of in a relaxed atmosphere and just kind of relax and, and talk about, talk a little bit about baseball. So I hear you have a signature drink that you've created for the event. Is that correct? Can you tell us about I, it? I do. It's Woody's winter whiskey. It's uh, Jameson black barrel, a little ginger beer. And uh, there's some other stuff in there I'm missing out, but this is it's really good drink. I'm not a whiskey drinker per se, but this mm. is uh, this is about the only brown drink I drink. Uh, the, Woody's, <laughs> the Woody's Winter Whiskey. Um, so yeah, Harry Carey has obviously been a huge supporter of us of our foundation, and they've been uh, a great partner over the last seven years. We host our events there, and um, so this is another thing they've done to to uh, kind of help us out and and support the foundation. So the Woody's Winter Whiskey is is on sale at all Harry Carey's and. 100% of the proceeds for these drinks go back to the foundation um, up and through uh, Ju- J- January 12th. So um, get out and get a Woody's Winter Whiskey. They're actually pretty good. So um, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a whiskey guy, so you know I might have to try that out. Although I'm a whiskey guy a lot because uh, Walgreens down the street started selling $11 bottles of Evan Williams. So I'm not exactly <sighs> like the classy camp. It's more like can't Yachty. pass that up. Yeah, right. Uh, what What is your drink? Do you have a signature drink just if you're sitting around having a cocktail? Is there something you make that's like really outstanding? I'm, I don't. I'm pretty simple. I'm, I'm just Tito's on the rocks with a lime. That's, yeah. that's just, uh, just a sip it. I'm not a big uh, cocktail drinker and a big drinker, period, but I, uh, I'll sip on those. What about, you know, I just before we move on from this, I want to talk about just the purpose of the event. I mean, I, I, people like these types of events. They're a lot of fun, but uh, there's a great cause behind it. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done with your foundation and the mission behind it? Yeah. So, so what family foundation, we, we launched a, a mentoring program uh, four years ago. So it's called pitch in and we are in North Lawndale at Lawndale community Academy. And uh, we mentor fourth through eighth graders uh, every day of the week after school there. Um, and it's been, it's been a, just a great success every year. We've obviously, we take on another class and another class and we're to the point now where we are about ready to scale this and get into another school in the neighborhood and start really impacting a community and not just a, a specific school, which has been great. Um, and we've had, we've had such good success. We feel like it's time to, to scale this and get into another school in the neighborhood and start and start really having an impact on a community. So I think that's the ultimate goal is to, is to scale this thing throughout this community and throughout the neighborhood and, and try to try to make that impact. But um, it really just started. We were doing, you know, baseball clinics while I was still playing um, and, and just having having events and, and raising money and having having uh, parties and events and, and giving money to different organizations and different charities. And, um, you know, our baseball clinic turned out 300 something kids in Inglewood uh, the first year. Uh, and then the second year was the same. So as we were finishing up the second year of that baseball clinic in Inglewood, I think we realized as a as an organization and as a foundation that we were we were mentoring these kids throughout this one week that we had them every summer, uh, more so than we were teaching them baseball. Right. I mean, they, they, they were in a park that right. they didn't even, they didn't even know what those fences and what those dirt fields were for. It was just a park that they were told they're not to cross, right. Their whole, their whole life. You're not allowed to go to the park. Uh, and here we are playing baseball in the middle of the day. So it was kind of eye opening for them. And then we just realized we were mentoring more than doing anything else. So I think once I re- once I came back to Chicago, after I went to Cleveland and New York, I think we realized we were going to uh, stay here and finish my career here and raise our kids here. So it was time to kind of launch the foundation. So we launched the foundation in my last season, um, our second to last season. And uh, but the pitch and mentoring program took a little while to develop. And um, you know, once we once we got a hold of what we wanted to do, uh, we we found the right school and, and went into it. And so now we've got a hundred kids we're we're mentoring uh, now and and ultimately trying to get these kids to to navigate the application process for high school. We lose 
thousands of kids every year dropping out because of the process of applying for high school in Chicago, which is really sad and really tough that these kids have to deal with that. And the parents in these neighborhoods really don't know that process either. So it's, you know, we're, our goal is to get these kids to high school, hand them off to another organization that's going to get them to college. Um, and so we're, we're in the process of doing that now. So this is, these are obviously, these are fundraisers that help us raise money for these, for, for this, for this program. Um, this is one of our three fundraisers for the year and it's, uh, it's just a perfect time. It fits right with the Cubs convention. And again, you get the baseball people involved and Cubs have been a, a great supporter, but, um, no, it's, it's the, the program in itself has been, it's been eye opening and, um, it's been great for these kids and great for our mentors and, and great for our, our organization. But, and, and more importantly, it's been great for the community. So, um, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been fun to be a part of for sure, but we got a long, we got a lot of work to do. Yeah, I mean, as a Chicago native, one thing that really annoys me is how the city becomes, I think, used in national conversations by everybody on both sides. It's 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 an easy target to say, oh, the the murders and the crime in Chicago, and look at Chicago. But if you live here, you see a lot of stuff like like you know guys like you that are that are giving back. You see a lot of athletes that 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 stay here in town. A lot of people that uh, locate here for work and get involved. So I guess from your perspective, like. Um, as a philanthropist in town, like what's your read on just sort of the state of the city and how much its residents actually are pouring into fixing things? Well, you know, it's easy to say, it's easy to say, and we do it. And we, even our politicians that are downtown, they, 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 you know, I don't, I would be curious to see how many of them have actually driven the seven miles of terror that's four miles down the road to, to Lawndale and actually know what's going on in there. Um, you know, for, for some of the legislation and laws are passing, it just, I think it's a cycle that's going to, it's going to take it's going to take a community and, and, and the people to break that cycle. We can't rely on our, our politicians and our governments to, to break that cycle for us. They've had, they've had a long run at it and they haven't done it. Um, I think these communities are full of wonderful people that, 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 that want great for their families and want great for their kids. And they don't choose to be in a neighborhood that's like that. They don't choose to live a, a lifestyle where they have to watch out for gunfire when they go to school. They don't, they don't want that. That's not what they signed up for. Um, so I think as a, as a, as a community, as a city, as a society, we, we, there's gotta be people that take it upon themselves to, to go out and, and help. And, and I've got time and resources and had the platform to, to kind of start something. And, and it's, and it is just starting. I think we're just, we're just getting going and we're five years into it. We're still a baby organization and still trying to grow. And, uh, but great things are happening. Uh, and we're not the only organization that's in London. We're not the only organization that's in any of these neighborhoods. There's, there's tons right. of people in these neighborhoods and you see it and, uh, you know, you partner up with people and it's just, there's, there's enough people out there. There's, there's obviously you need more, you need want more people helping and to make it to a, a difference sooner, but there's a lot of people that they're aware of it and, and they're down there with their boots on the ground trying to make a difference. And, and we're just one of those small organizations trying to do that. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and, you know, transitioning to something else you're passionate about off air, we talked about, paddle, you know, a paddle tennis, right? That's the, the right term. Okay. So yeah. I, I'm picturing, if I'm picturing it correctly, it's, 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 it actually is played on like a real, uh, or kind of a miniature sized tennis court. That's a real tennis court, but you're enclosed within walls that the ball can bounce off of and you're using paddles, but a real tennis ball. Is that the correct? It's yeah. It's not a real tennis ball. It's more like a, yeah, it's not a, t- yeah, it's yeah. That's sort of correct. I, I, I tend to describe it as I'm standing on a giant ping pong table. Okay. I mean, right. It's just, it's a mini tennis court or a giant ping pong table. Um, but yeah, and I'm not a tennis player. So it was kind of, it was, I'm more of, a, it was more of a ping pong player. And I always, all my buddies are playing this game, playing paddle and doing, talking about it. And, you know, of course, everybody's all the, uh, all the orthopedics love paddle because they keeps them in business. <laughs> Everyone seems to blow out an Achilles or a knee or an ankle or something. So 
I was skeptical in that respect to begin with. <laughs> yeah, um, but I mean, as an athlete, you must have like a punch card, right? Like you, like yeah. seven surgeries free, eighth one's free, or something like that. Yeah, I, I'm there. I'm there. I made it. <laughs> <laughs> how did you hear? Okay, so your friends started talking about this, and then w- when did when did you finally commit? And how long did it take you to really get into it? I've only played one match. I've only played oh. one. I've only played a one actual match, but I'm, but like I, I went and took one lesson. My wife got me some lessons. I took one lesson and then they threw me right into a match and got destroyed the first game and ended and kind of figured it out. But like, I get it. I love it. I'm so I'm, I'm, I'm digging paddle right now. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, the guys that have done this for the past few years, they've already beaten their bodies up. And now that a lot of my buddies are over it because they've been playing for four or five years and like, it just beat me up. But like, I'm, I get what it's about. So I've, been playing quite a you know trying to play as much paddle as i can i got another big match tonight series 26 oh well, okay so what is what is the level of physical exertion because it's a smaller court but you still gotta i mean i'm picturing i guess so, the size of a racquetball court right yeah yeah about the same size so okay. here's the physical the physical exertion comes from the newbies the old men <laughs> the old the old men the old men that play and the old guys that have been playing for 15 years they stand in one spot and just they run you like a rabbit <laughs> so for me, I'm exhausted, but as I think, as you get to play it and you get better at it, I think that the, the physical exertion becomes less and you get better about placing the ball. Cause you can play it off the screens and do all these. It's a, it's an interesting game. I'm not sure where it came from or much more about it, but, uh, no, so I'm kind of digging that right now. So when the, when the ball hits the, so when you, you hit it in, you hit it in play just like regular tennis, but if the ball bounces up high and hits the screen, it cannot bounce again, right? You just got to play it in the air. Correct. Yeah, you got to play it off the screen in the air. How hard so, is that? It's not easy, but apparently, <laughs> if you're apparently, if it's all about positioning, if you're in the right spot, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Turns out I'm never. Turns out I'm never in the right spot. So, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting. It's a. It's not so much physical as is mental and kind of like I don't know. There's a little bit of pitching aspect to it. A little finesse, a little location, and little. I don't know. So I, I'm 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 trying to figure it out still. Is your style like the high heat? I mean, that's what that's what people want to expect. If I were to show up at like a you know Kerry Wood uh, paddle tennis game, I'd be wanting to see you like just whipping the balls as hard as you can. But I'm I'm sure it's a lot more of a finesse game than yeah. That. No, I know I give the crowd one or two of those just you know just just for show. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we want, man. That's what we pay for. <laughs> no, it doesn't benefit you because it bounces off the screen closer to where they're standing. Yeah, you know what I mean, oh yeah, that's so totally like, true. And I wasn't a tennis player, so I'm I'm long with when I hit it hard, I hit it too far and it's long. So I, I I'm more I try to play it like ping pong, really. Um, but yeah, no, there's not there's guys that do blast it, and I'm you know if, I can't do that. There's there's like these old tennis players that just are smashing balls, and I, I can't <laughs> I can't do it. Is it hard for you? Okay, I've always wondered this because we, on this show we've talked to a lot of um, guys who have sort of uh, had fun with other sports or other endeavors. Is it fun for you to play, or do you always get everybody's best game because they're like, "I'm going to tell the story of beating Kerry Wood at something forever." I always get their best games, right? I yeah. always get everybody's best golf game, best everything, and then if I'm, you know, if I'm having no trouble with them, you know, I. I give them their beat down, but if I have a little trouble and I start acting like they're going to, like, I'm going to, I'm not going to go full out and lose. I'll do, I, I would concede before <laughs> I would concede <laughs> and, and before I went full out and lost this. Some, I don't know. Um, no, I haven't gotten into too many of those, but I do. I definitely get the best. I, I get guys best golf game. They come, they come ready. They're beating me to the range by an hour. They're, full lather going ready to go <laughs> oh man that is the word actually but that's got to be satisfying when someone's there like two hours early like uh doing everything and you just like smoke them by five strokes or something yeah but then once they play with them they realize i'm a 
horrid golf player, so they they don't ever have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> is it a hard transition to be just okay at something when you spend your entire life in, as an at a, an elite level? Is it a, is it a psychological adjustment, or are you just like, no, nah, man, I'm just having fun. It's fine. Um, it's humbling. I mean, I, so I, I really put a lot of time in at the beginning of this year, uh, right when the weather broke uh, on my golf game. Cause I didn't play much as a, I, play, I was a two or three year round of golf guy. So I, I got new clubs and I, I dedicated my spring and summer to it, to playing as much golf as I could. And, and I got, I mean, my right away, like in the first month and a half numbers were going down, strokes were going way down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, Oh, I get this game. I love it. I've started to kind of feel the ball. I can kind of move it. And then all of a sudden I stopped working and just started playing all the time and stopped practicing. Yeah. That's when it got frustrating because my score started going back up. And that's when you realize you're not going to be the reason I was good at what I, what I was good at in baseball is because I practiced every day of my life, you know, for since I was like seven years old, I practiced most of the year, uh, throwing, working on things, practicing. Uh, if you don't do that in any other sport, it's like us, PGA guys have said, it's like, what do you expect? You expect to come out there and, and play, play one round a week or once, twice a month (laughs) and come out and shoot a 68. Like, why do you, why do you slam your club when you slice one? Right? Like they do it and they practice every day, all day long. So it's just, it's a mindset. It definitely is a mindset. It's humbling when you're playing a, playing a game. And I played a sport where the ball was moving and you know, you have to, you have to hit the ball while it's moving. You got to be able to catch it. and, And then here you are standing in a, on a golf course with no noise ball's just sitting there, not moving, waiting for you to hit it. And there's times where you can swing and hit, you know, six inches behind it and miss the ball completely. And I I don't do that anymore, but that's, that's humbling when you're a professional athlete and you go out to play a sport where you just kind of walk around and hit a ball that doesn't move and and all these things. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's humbling. So that was, uh, it's a mindset. It's a mindset going in. So I, I changed my mindset as to about midway through the summer of, of to have fun again with golf instead of taking it so serious. The first part of the summer was taking it serious and then, uh, it, it, it wasn't working out for me. So it's back to a, uh, a casual fun event. What's your, what's the, what's the kind of, I guess the strong suit and the weak spot of your game. And I'll, 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 I'll preface that by saying like, I've always maintained a pretty solid tee shot. I got good length and I keep it relatively consistent, but yeah. my, uh, my long irons, I can hit it like with length, but I could never aim it. Like the people who say like, oh, I got a three hour now and I'm aiming for like center green. I'm like, bro, I just want to get it up there. Like there's no yeah. way. It's like we're playing a different game. So I guess what would you say is the strong suit and the, and the weak spot of your game? Oh, I'm not sure. I mean, they, they all, they vary. I mean, my weak spot is consistent, is off the tee. I, even, even that varies. There's very few days where I, I mean, there, there was a two month stretch this summer where I didn't even take my driver out of the car. I didn't even bring right. it, you know, and then all of a sudden I bring it for, for, for a tournament. I play a tournament one day and I hit it, just bring it out. Cause it doesn't count. And I, you know, I'm not in it straight all day long. And then I take it out and play, you know, two or three more times and it's straight. So it just varies for me. And that's what was so frustrating, right? Like one day you go out and play and you, you, you hit, you know, 13 fairways off the tee box. And then you go out and play two days later and you hit one. You know, for me, it was just, right. it's just a, that mental battle back and forth of compensating, fixing, you know, adjusting a grip because I hit a bad one and it's stuff you should be doing on the range. You know, I, I tend to take that stuff out and try to figure it out when I'm out there, um, which, you know, doesn't work in most things. Have you ever had like a triumphant like putt to, to win a, you know, a handful of cash from a friend or just like, like uh, clinch, clinch a head to head match with, with someone or anything like that? I did actually in Ireland, we had an eight, some a bunch of guys flew out this past uh, September 
And the last day of the last round, we had finished our little round robin thing. We, and we were, we played a four, we played two foursomes against each other in the last, on the last day, on the last course. And so it was 18th hole and we had to make a, it was, you know, you get, y'all get four putt, y'all get your putt. There's four of us. We got our putt. We were off the green about, I don't know, we were probably 50 feet, between 50 and 60 feet. And I went first and, uh, and it was, we had to drain it to the tie and we weren't going to play any more holes. So it was just a push. So I drained, I drained the 50 footer first putt to, to, <laughs> to, push, to push it. Are you, a, I'm, I'm picturing you as very stoic when that happens, like no real celebration, just like that quiet look, but what, what, yeah. what, your, what was your reaction? I think I just dropped the putter and turned around and walked back to the park. <laughs> didn't say anything. <laughs> That's the way to do it, man. It's like that, that, that assassin, you know, like one yeah. shot, one kill. Boom. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been spraying it for, I've been spraying it for three hours all over. <laughs> I picked up on five different holes and it was just, it was awful. And I walk up and drain a 50 footer. Did, did you play it when you were, when you, your career was happening, did you play golf or no? You know, we had, I had different managers, very few managers I had were okay with traveling with clubs. Um, and so I just didn't do it. And I had some back issues early on in my career that I was dealing with. And, and so I just stayed away from it. And I, I'd play in the off season just mainly because I lived in Arizona. And even then, once I turned 22, I mean, I play, I was out in Arizona, seven, 18, 18, 19, 20, 22. And I quit playing golf about 22 and just, and, and just gave it up. I wasn't good enough and it was too painful and, uh, wasn't right. worth it. So I just, I became like a two year, two, two round a year guy. If somebody asked me to play in a tournament on an off day or something and I was available, I would do it, but there was no, uh, yeah, there was no regular play. In terms of your interests, like it's, it can be difficult for athletes. I think sometimes their career ends, uh, finding a sense of purpose. I mean, you clearly have, you're doing great work with the foundation. You're, you're, you seem like a really active guy doing a lot of different things. Like how, I guess, how do you foresee, um, you know, the, the next chapter of, of where you take things from here? Do, do you want to keep kind of dabbling in, in a lot of different pursuits? Do you, do you ever get into something and think, you know, Hey, why don't I just really buckle down and make this my primary thing? Or do you like to kind of, uh, you know, do, a, I guess Renaissance man is too strong a word, but do you like, do you like to just kind of do it all and dabble? Yeah. You know, I mean, I've been, I was, I mean, from the age 15 till I was 35, I mean, I had 20 year stretch where I didn't focus on anything, but that one thing. Right. Uh, right. And then, you know, I've taken some years off, taken a few years off now. And my focus has been family and, and raising my kids and being involved in every aspect of their life and being at every game and every recital and every play. And, and I've enjoyed, I've just enjoyed it immensely. And the kids have been, have been great. And, and so we started traveling and my kids all travel and we, we love going and seeing parts of the world and, you know, different, different countries. And, and so it's been, it's been great, but yeah, the, for sure, I can't do this forever. There definitely has to be, um, you know, something, uh, there's gotta be a phase two. And, and, uh, so in the process, right. I'm in the process of figuring that out. I don't, I don't, um, I don't have anything lined. I don't have anything specific that I'm in. I mean, inter I'm interested in a lot of stuff. Do I, am I interested enough to, to make that a profession or to know how to make that a profession? These are, you know, those are the questions that I'm, I'm, you know, kind of dealing with now and trying to figure out what, what, uh, what the next step is, but, um, I don't know. Well, yeah. in the interim, we love the work you're doing in Chicago. We we love the event coming up, and we cannot wait to find you on a uh, on a paddle tennis court <laughs> and challenge, man. Uh, and you can and you can be the guy making us run. Yeah, uh, well, let's hope that's the case by then. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks so much, guy. I really appreciate the time, man. And great, uh, best of luck with the event. Have a great holiday, man. Appreciate it. You too. Thanks for having me. And 
And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they're all doing cool things. But when they talk about them, they're told they are a locker room distraction. We think that is terrible. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, we tell you what's distracting us. Guys, I'm going to throw this out there for you. Do you have like uh, air quotes uh, at home pants? Because I have like two pairs of sweats that I go back and forth in. Like when I come home, like Mr. <laughs> Imagine Mr. Rogers coming in with, you know, like his, his work outfits and then just like putting on like either gray sweatpants or uh, black, uh, you know, workout pants. Like that's, you know, that's my life coming home. So I'm just wondering, do you guys have like at home leisure wear that you lean into and maybe only wash like once a month or are, I mean, allegedly, or is am I just like a crazy slob who prefers being in the equivalent of like homeless pants? Yo, I, I got hmm. those. I have a pair of cut off black sweat shorts. That I wear all the time, and I, my wife. Oh man, stole them. I get a picture of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife. Of course you do. Them. Hold on. yeah, yeah. She stole them to wash them after I cooked Thanksgiving dinner in them. I didn't eat Thanksgiving dinner in them. I changed, but she was like, <laughs> as you took those off, I looked down, and they just had a gigantic flower handprint on one ass cheek, and I decided it was time to wash them. Man. Did you did, okay, Gareth? I have to ask the inevitable follow up question here. I'm sorry, I'm doing it. Did <laughs> did you cut those off, or did you did you steal them off of a Brooklyn homeless person while they were cut off? <laughs> we we were fighting about who played Leatherface. Was it Connor Nelson <laughs> or Gutter Hanson? <laughs> And in a fit of rage, as he chased me down the street, I doubled back, stole them from his pile, and took them home. And I've been wearing them ever since. Okay. All right. Well, uh, apparently other people have uh, workout pants but or uh, home pants, but I feel a lot better about mine. Uh, Adam, what is distracting you this week? Um, while we're talking movies... I wanted to talk about a movie I saw recently that I think is the movie of the year and I hope we'll clean up um, at the Oscars. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. It is the most gut-wrenching and the most laugh-out-loud, funny, witty movie that I've seen maybe ever. So I'd recommend people go see that if you haven't heard about it. Uh, it was a rather small film and probably only releasing and um, in big towns. Uh, but I saw it on Thanksgiving and it, it was a great movie. So there you go. I, I saw it. I loved it. Um, I thought it had one of the best punchiest final lines I had seen in years. Mm -hmm. And the same director did in Bruges, which I adore that movie. All right. I'm going to go with my distraction then. Um, I'm going to throw this to the group. I'll take it around the horn. Okay, so blah, 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 death of media. I've been finding that I don't have as many websites to go to anymore since Gothamist is now out of business, Gawker is out of business, etc. 
So give me one website I should be going to that I don't normally visit. The, yeah, I'll give you one that might surprise you. Teen Vogue. I think All people right. think of... Yeah, I think people think of uh, Teen Vogue. Our adults would think of Teen Vogue as um, somewhat vapid, covering only pop culture for teens. But they do a really good job with their social commentary around a number of issues while also maintaining their pop culture vibe. So I would check out Teen Vogue if you get a chance. Uh, can mine, I'm going to cop out and have it be something that you listen to. Um, so I recently, uh, discover, I think I've talked about these before. I discovered two podcasts. They're like basically your daily dose of news, pop culture media that you need to know in like 10 minutes or less. NPR is up first. I don't know if you guys okay. listen to this or, um, Mm-mm. so it's really great. And they usually they'll, they're released at like 6am Eastern every weekday. And it's like, here are the biggest, like, two or three stories that are going to be in the news today. You know, like the vote on healthcare, or the big political scandal, or the pop culture, or whatever, X, Y, and Z. So there's that one. And then for uh, for the New, York, the New York Times has a similar one. It's called The Daily. That one usually gets a little bit longer, and they kind of go a little bit more in-depth on topics. But same thing. It's like you're walking to work, or you're taking the bus to work. They're like 15 to 20 minutes each. Um and they're really refreshing. I'll usually do both of them on my commute, uh, you know, like to and from work in the morning. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of, it feels like it keeps me informed without having to sort of scour everywhere. You get a nice little sort of uh, cliff notes of what's going on in the day. Awesome. Yeah. I, and that was Joe Reed's. I'm not even sure what to say. Uh, um,. You know, like Reddit, <laughs> you know, just like see, <laughs> I think too much we look through the media filter, like just see what the people are posting. And I do think we do ourselves a service when we just go look at like the darker, not darker, meaning it's it, it, insidious, uh, although Reddit has a terrible reputation for that. But just go look at like the unheralded corners of the internet because there's so much content that flows from it. Uh, that sometimes I feel like when we distance ourselves from the source of rumors and innuendo and uh, sometimes news, uh, we lose the context of um, of what uh, what news is trustworthy or not. All right, Joe, what's your distraction? So my distraction is kind of also a shout out um, being uh, the week before Christmas. Um, I just want to like, I've been distracted by Christmas stuff. I thankfully have gotten most of my shopping done, um, but we're traveling for the holidays. And so I feel like my mind is all on like time with family and what are we going to be eating and what are we going to be doing? Um, And I know we've done this in the past and I think you guys did it when we did our post Thanksgiving episode, giving a shout out to uh, people who host the holidays. I feel like whenever we get around the holidays, we always do that. Uh, my wife and I hosted Thanksgiving this year at our place, and it was like first time we'd done that. Such an undertaking, more than I ever would have expected. And we only hosted my brother and his wife uh, and their son, so it's like we didn't even have 20 people over. So I feel like I'm preparing to be as helpful as possible as a guest, and also um, giving a shout out to anyone who hosts people for the holidays because uh, it's hard work and there will come a point where you just want your house back to the way it was. And I totally feel for you. 
Nice. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Let's give a shout out to our guest, a shout out to, uh, you know, whoever directed the program. (laughs) Uh, They're still working or alive. Uh, Anyone else got any shout outs? I'd like to give a shout out to the usual people. Plus one. Uh, We'll start with Steve Latimer. Uh, Hang in there. Prison's not so bad. Uh, I also like to shout out my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Lil Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and my other cousin Ron. And in the immortal words of linebacker extraordinaire Steve Latimer, not every one of us has your natural ability. (laughs) Booty rappers, stay booty. Booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty. booty.